At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? What would you do if you had opportunity to change the lives and impact people around the world in a very specific niche or innovate and transform healthcare or do something not only through your education, but also opportunities to um, innovate and change how is care provided in very specific areas. I have tremendous guests here. She's disruptor. She's phenomenal leader. She's innovator. She's futurist because she's showing what's possible in arena of health, biochemistry, and so much more. Truly, words are so short to describe not only the resume and pedigree of this amazing human being that is also a physician, and someone to pioneer the first transplant organs, specifically from live donors, a liver transplants, and so much more. So without further ado, let me introduce you to this amazing human being, Suzanne Mandel, that she will share so much more on this episode of Legacy Leader Show. Susan, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you for finding the time to join. I know you had such a long career and you still continue to do amazing work, but I want to make sure the way we're impacting obviously and sharing the impact that you created and continue to create about others that others can have a chance also to learn what is possible so before we dive into as a someone who obviously um, always had a drive to make a difference and uh, from early on in your life how did you even get in the realm of medicine and how did you even start to add these amazing not only degrees that are very challenging and difficult but to build yourself up and continue to show what's possible uh, in so many of these highly regulated industries and niches so how did i get to medicine well i actually started as a research scientist at the University of Toronto, and I graduated uh, and got my first national grants to support uh, work I was doing in a biochemistry lab, and I just became interested. I became interested in more uh, biological systems because I started from uh, a very physical chemistry point of view, and then I just became interested in biological chemistries. And my next steps were simply to start to take courses that were based on physiology, understanding of that. And then the next thing I found is that I was heading towards medicine. Mm. So um, when I finished, you know, I finished medicine during the whole time I was in medicine, I continued to actually to work, uh, to continue my research and publish papers. And uh, during that time, uh, you know, publication was not that common. You did an awful lot of work to put into a publication. But I remember um, I published a paper, paper in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, which was 
very highly, highly rated journal in the area. And I was so shocked that it shocked me into believing I can do anything I really set my mind to. That is amazing. And it's specifically in arena where a, a lot of support, specifically as to see the woman that carved such a strong career in early on, because we know that women were not as much supported at that time. How did you step in and get um, support within your community, obviously, uh, and then be able to uh, continue to uh, advance? Well, the truth is, is that I chose very carefully. When I started my PhD program at the University of Toronto, I, the person I started with, I didn't feel very supported. And so then I moved on to a different supervisor who treated me just like everybody else. Doesn't matter whether it was female, male, or what it was. You know, I just had a feeling that I was just one of his mentees. And so um, I was probably very fortunate in uh, having that environment, but also it wasn't just pure luck. It was also choice because I recognized that where I started maybe wasn't the best. And then I moved on to a place where somebody supported me uh, who was blinded to gender and various other things. It just didn't care. All he, all he wanted me to do was do well. Mm. And, and obviously, uh, from there, as a scientist and that finished uh, PhD degree, which was, I'm sure, extremely challenging, a lot of dedication, you continued. You did not stop there. What did you do next? I'm, I'm just floored how much you accomplished in your professional career. And I want every woman, but also everyone to see what is possible, specifically during current times. Well, you know, after I went into medicine, it was very hard for me because I had climbed to the top of my academic field, including getting uh, some of the most competitive grants uh, in, in Canada at that time. And to find myself at the bottom of, of the ladder in first year medical school. And so I, it, it was an adjustment. And I think that uh, success comes from uh, learning your system very carefully and pulling out the things that are going to advance you and trying to minimize the things that hold you back. And so uh, when I look at my experience, you know, it was, it was not that purposeful, but I realized that's what I was doing. So I kept on moving towards things where there was opportunity. And to look back on my whole career, I would use the term, I'm an opportunist, not in a negative way, but in a positive way in that I don't believe it's just, you know, about being a woman or being whoever you are. You have to look for the opportunity when it arises and you have to be flexible enough to say, I'm going to take that opportunity. I would have never thought I would have wound up in the field of transplant. It had nothing to do whatsoever with where I came from. You know, I came from a whole different area of you know, cellular communication proteins. So I, you'd think, well, you'd wind up in immunology or something like that. But what happened was, as I went through medicine, doors opened and I then chose to walk through those specific doors because they offered certain things. They offered uh, support, they offered innovation, they offered, uh, you know, 
advances in some way. And I would ask myself, do I want to do this? As a matter of fact, my first uh, you know, experience with transplant was at the University of Toronto. I was, uh, you know, the the ICU person, and I became almost dismayed about this because it was in the mid '80s, and we hadn't gotten adequate uh, immunosuppressants yet, and so patients did very poorly. And I thought this is just you know, this is just a terrible area, just a terrible area. And then I remember when we got our first immunosuppressant, which was cyclosporin, all of a sudden a door of opportunity opened. This is a new area. This is an area where you can really save lives, absolutely save lives. And then I moved on to uh, the University of Colorado uh, to help um, a surgeon reopened the original liver transplant program at the University of Colorado. That is where the first liver transplant in the world was done by Dr. Thomas Starzl. And I remember walking into the operating room and it was the same operating room he'd actually done his liver transplants in, which was a testament to how the place had to revitalize itself, but also was it was eerie. And I remember thinking, this is something really, really special. And the person I worked with, the surgeon I worked with, he was really special. Again, he was just focused on, he didn't care who you were, if you had three heads, one head, whatever. He just said, we've got to do our best. We've got we've to make this work and we've got to save lives. And that was always his attitude. And so, you know, when I had originally looked for jobs um, that were going to focus on transplant, I focused in on him because it was at what I saw an opportunity that would help me help everybody else survive and get a transplant and have a long-term survival. So, wow. so you've been trailblazer pioneering and back in the days of the first ever liver transplant. Well, I that occurred in the 60s, which was... <laughs> Way before my time. Thank God I'm not quite that old. Um, but, you know, it really limped and limped and limped along. It was a field that they didn't understand because there wasn't enough uh, understanding of the immunology and there certainly wasn't enough understanding of how to control the immune response. And really the the, the major uh, push was uh, in the done in the UK by uh, Sir Kong, who found actually the first immunosuppressant. He identified the first immunosuppressant called cyclosporin. And it, you know, I will say that the world was a different time then. There wasn't so much, uh, you know, bureaucracy and getting things through. So the time that cyclosporin was discovered to the time that it was put into clinical practice was almost as fast as the COVID vaccines, you know, because, because there wasn't the uh, all, you know, running of all the bureaucracy to do things. People just said, well, I'm just simply going to use this drug. And it became the standard very quickly. And as you know, probably that uh, that field of immunosuppressants has expanded incredibly. And still not, still not our final answer, but, um, really does still save lives. 
So, so it's such a great um, opportunity to also look at what historically occurred and, and then also, as I said, progression that is being made, but also tremendous opportunities still to be done. Um, do you mind sharing for everybody watching and listening? I know that liver transplant, specifically from live organic, can be a very random and very rare occurrence or very rare to really be aware of if you because unless it happens to someone close to you. But in reality, we're seeing so much due post-COVID and wide range of symptoms and attributes, how we live, how we uh, also do our daily life where we see a lot of more risks and more and more needs and more and more demand from preventative aspects of it. What would you like to see or or or, or, or always been advocating for um, to really change so that you're not kind of on that spectrum, right? And ever needed, but when you do need uh, what some of the advice would be in terms of a recommendation for people that simply don't know much about it, uh, what to pay attention to. So the first thing that I'd really like to bring up is the fact that there are common causes of liver failure that are preventable. And the best thing is not to have to go there, not to have to require a liver transplant. So in the United States, in the 90s, the most common cause of, you know, reason for needing liver transplant was hepatitis C. Now there's all kinds of treatment for hepatitis C. And plus we've identified a lot of the vectors that transmit hepatitis C. So the medical community can do a, an awful lot to reduce the risk of you needing a liver transplant. Hepatitis C is still very big in third world countries and or countries that, I don't know, that just don't screen as widely as they should. And so one of the things that I would like to see, and this would probably have to be through the World Health Organization or other international organizations, is that there are is a real push to support screening for hepatitis C. So now in the United States, because I can only really talk about the United States, the most common cause or reason needing a liver transplant is no longer hepatitis C. Treatment, screening, you know, good medical treatment. Now it is what we call uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH. And that is related to, to a combination of two things. The um, gene for insulin resistance combined with uh, overweight. So there is an opportunity here for the populace, the physicians, the medical community can never control the weight problem or the screening for this particular uh, condition. Um, in the United States, this this condition is not is not screened for, and this may have to do with you know the um, problems that face um, you know the cost in medicine, which when we think about it, you know, for one liver transplant we could probably screen, you know, 10,000 people or more. But the, the individuals who control 
the access to medicine are no longer physicians. They're people who are in corporate, uh, you know, companies. So we, we face that problem. People in other countries may not face that same issue, but they may face an issue of not having enough financial resources to screen people for this. But even if you screen somebody for something and you tell them you're at risk, then you have to have a motivation for that individual to want to care for themselves. And I think that, you know, uh, People from all over the world, you know, ranging from social workers to neurobiologists to psychiatrists still can't figure out how they can motivate people so that people uh, will take positive steps towards, uh, you know, caring for themselves. And so that may be a big area still left in medicine, because when I've traveled around the world, and I've been very fortunate to be able to go to a number of countries to um, support uh, transplantation in these countries, that one thing I've noticed is, is the growing global issue of obesity. And so, for example, you know, I was really quite concerned when I was in, in, in India and I saw this growing obesity. And I know that uh, people of that heritage have an increased uh, propensity or or um, prevalence of carrying the uh, of insulin resistance, and I was thinking, oh, this is a terrible combination, you know. And all you have to do is look at diet, and you can pick out things in the diet. But people are very culturally bound to their diets and things like that. So I think that you know, in terms of moving forward in the world for prevention, prevention, I think that work on the psychology of why people fail to, to care for themselves or take the most optimal steps or what holds them back is going to be a really important thing. Screening to unidentified people at risk saying that, I mean, it's only fair to say that, well, if you gain that weight, you are at uh, unusual risk, you know, um, to do that. We've done that for other uh, conditions such as colon cancer and various things like that. So uh, I think that's important. And then I think in terms of access and caring, the use of human donors is never going to meet the needs of all individuals. It's just simply never going to. Um, it never has in the past, even when there were a lot fewer candidates on the list. And so I know that we put a lot of our efforts into, you know, um, promoting donation, getting more donors, whether it be living donors, deceased donors, or something like that. And while that's necessary at this time, because we have no real other good options, we need to return to our, our roots of science and find other options. So we need to be, so for example, there is uh, work that's currently being done on uh, transgenic animals, which are animals that you can manipulate the, the uh, inheritance on so that some of these animals, you can use the organs from them and they will look to the, when you implant them, the human body doesn't see them as being that different. There's a long way to go, but, this area doesn't have as much support as it should have 
because in the meantime, we are still very busy putting our money into fighting COVID and, and uh, fighting other things and, you know, all the, the money that goes into uh, neurobiology-based diseases such as Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. And so the transplant issue is actually very underfunded and is and it is not given the priority it should i believe uh for example at the national institutes of health in uh the united states it's not the top priority transplant because you know we can certainly treat a number of people they are more interested in funding things that are truly killing people at this point you know uh and I'm not going to say that transplant doesn't get funding. Of course it does, but it, it it's it's not seen as as a health crisis that it really is, because when we look at it, the problem with transplant is that in the majority of cases, transplant is not a cure. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you get a transplant, it's not like you're going to return to a normal life. First of all, the quality of your life is highly impacted because you will take, uh, you know, anti-rejection drugs and various other things for the rest of your life. You will face um, uh, probably a number of uh, medical crises, which are very frightening. In addition, transplant only gives you more quantity of life. Uh, and, and of course, better quality than you had when you had end organ failure. So it takes you really from end organ failure to the categories of organ insufficiency. Because in the by far, in the majority of people, their bodies continue to attack the transplanted organ. So that's why we talk about organ survival times. So we say the the average uh, one year survival for a liver transplant patient, 95%, excellent. And I think that most people who fund science say, that's fine, we're done. You know, but if you look, if you look out five years, the average survival is only 65% of people who went. And then it continues, it never stops dropping. It never stops, it continues to go on from that. And now we do have people who are long-term survivors who are somehow what we call immunologically privileged, people who stop taking their immunosuppressants and stop seeing their doctors and didn't die and just continue on. We don't know what's special about those people, but there is, but they are so rare. They are so rare by far the majority of people, even once they get an organ transplant are going to have a, a challenging route and can't expect to live their full capacity of what would be predicted for their lives. This is so eye-opening and I'm so glad that we have this conversation because uh, I'm all about preventative health. What can I do to position myself for longevity, for long-term health and change and adjust others, gaining weight and losing weight, having healthy habits, recovering from 
cold, cold flu, whatever might be the case, all the way, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, obviously paying attention, what we're seeing hugely impacting so many around the world, which, as you mentioned, is obesity. And uh, uh, as a result, how that hinders performance of over, overall performance, our mood, our, our mental health, as well as our physical health, right? But then what we do to prevent and educate, I feel like it's not enough of that happening. So hopefully uh, we'd, we'd accomplish something um, that will be tremendously impactful for others by listening to your impactful and such a powerful share. Because we don't, what you don't know, you don't know, right? But when you do know, now it's time to do better, right? On the flip side, um, I'm thankful for sharing some of those statistics, um, how project process and journey of being recipient of live organ uh, also has its own journey and um, that not always everything as people think might solve solves um, for that matter I'm sure that ties the same thing for kidney or any other uh, organ donation and transplants that happen and occur uh, at this current time would you say that it's still a lot of opportunity there to invest and research and also um, that we still have a lot of room to involve and also a lot of room to um, tap, tap into different expertise to get maybe to that optimal um, recovery or opportunities truly if we're on that other spectrum when we need organ uh, to truly uh, understand where the how, what what life expectancy or risks are associated with that. I think that there's a lot of opportunities period in the field of transplant when you start from the very beginning of preventing people from getting a transplant. I don't I've never understood why there is, is such a failure to pay attention to uh, food as being a a cause and perhaps a treatment for uh, disease or most of all prevention. But I, I can I can assure you it's one thing in the United States that doctors do not really spend that much time on. And um, it's certainly a, a place where um, industry trumps health, you know, by financial investment, you know? So McDonald's is a huge corporation that can certainly buy an awful lot of influence in the country. Um, and, you know, this kind of thing, I think in countries that have socialized healthcare, such as the Scandinavian countries, Canada, where I came from, there's a lot more emphasis on, uh, you know, preventative measures because the government is essentially responsible for paying for it. So there's they they can do the math themselves and see yes. that, you know, financial contributions do never, never outweigh, you know, the cost of the burden of, you know, or the burden of disease, you know, caused by obesity or poor selection in food. So I think that there's tremendous opportunity there in, in places that are capable, have a construct that are capable of implementing them and also capable of making them a mainstream of medical education to be passed on to patients. 
So that's what I see as prevention. The second thing I see as prevention is um, adequate screening, catching things really early. And I uh, know that there are, um, you know, liver disease is something and kidney disease are, are things that are really not screened for that well. And um, I think that uh, especially companies in the United States would argue it's not cost effective. That's such a bizarre term when you apply it to medicine, cost effective. Is it cost effective for your life or is it cost effective for their company? That's the factor because if it's your life, anything is cost effective if you can catch a disease early. So the concept of holding back screening methods because they're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, gather enough cases from your screening, I think is a very poor argument. Okay. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, companies uh, in the United States will not have not to date support screening for APO. B, which is a APO A and B, which are proteins that are inherently, uh, you know, etiologic in cardiovascular disease. And what's one of the biggest killers in the United States and probably worldwide? Cardiovascular disease, you know, especially coronary artery disease. But they say, oh, you don't catch enough case, but that's not true. That's not true. So, and, and the thing is, is that, yes, I would agree that if you started screening everybody, it may not be cost-effective. No, no reason to screen two-year-olds, okay? But once we get up, I mean, that's why we do risk analysis. And so the whole field of medicine, again, has to become, we, we, we think of physicians as very educated, but it's, they are educated, but we don't do enough risk analysis in our practices to say you need screening you and 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 then justify that so if somebody's 50 years old they have to have the type 2 di diabetes gene they're uh, overweight they're relatively inactive yes an apo a and b would probably be a very effective screening test to identify whether those individuals uh, had a greater risk of cardiovascular disease but instead of risk uh, analyzing the population, the corporations that pay for the tests, they just simply say there's not enough uh, cost benefit in that. So, but the, for the person who then falls down dead, you know, on the sidewalk, yes, it would have been good to know if they would have had those particular risk factors. So mm -hmm. I'd like, so that, is an example, just an example under screening, because there's so much, so many more things. There are individuals right now who are working on bringing out a test that is an early detector of liver disease. And um, it's also uh, a detector of how liver disease changes. And so what, if you have all of a sudden an increase in it, and I know those individuals are working hard and they're having to get crowdfunding for their project. But if you talk to the people who needed a transplant, they would certainly 
be more than interested in having that disease, you know, instead of waiting until you had a real adverse event, such as, you know, bleeding from esophageal varices, it would be nice to be able to protect, predict that you're heading in that direction and you need to stop before you get there. But that's not our method these days. Our method is to wait until you have a catastrophe and then go in and treat it. So um, just an example in the field of liver of screening. And then, of course, you know, the end thing is, is that I think that uh, the future has to look forward to finding an alternate um, way of, of treating end-stage liver disease because humans are never going to be an adequate source to save all lives. Whether it be just a fear of organ donation or whether it be, uh, you know, cultural restrictions on organ donation or what it's going to be. I mean, when I look at some of the countries that do the most uh, liver transplants, so for example, there's the Renji Hospital in Shanghai, okay? One year they did over 800 liver transplants. Now they primarily use living donors um, and did all their patients who needed a transplant get one? No, and that's over 800. Just at one hospital, one wow. hospital from living donors. So the, so the question is like, we've proven, we've absolutely proven this in multiple countries, you're never going to get enough human donors to save all the lives that are at risk. So perhaps it's really time to start pushing, uh, you know, science very hard in the direction of how are we going to solve this organ shortage problem? What are we going to be able to come up with? We And we're getting close because we have all the pieces in place. We have these transgenic animals. We have 3D printers that can actually print out uh, a, an artificial um, liver. And if you could have the cells to implant that into, and we have a lot of cell biology that has, you know, really, we're, we're very far advanced with that, with understanding how cells go together, hold themselves together, how they communicate. So there, there's real hope for this. It just needs a big push. I, I cannot agree more with you. And it's also however glooming and terrifying is uh, when someone who you care or your loved ones or God forbid yourself finding yourself in that situation changes completely everything, right? How we look at it alive and everything else. And I'm also glad to hear how new technological advancements are going to hopefully soon uh, reshape uh, opportunities for the ones that are hopeful, that are waiting, and 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 don't know, don't have any other avenue or another way to um, gain and receive that much needed organ, uh, so that they can have as much as possible longevity and quality of life that they can have. So. In closing, what I would love to, if you don't mind, share, um, obviously you are faculty, you are teaching, you are engaging, you're still keeping pulse on what's going on on global scene, impacting and influencing with so many of your efforts, uh, which again, kudos, and again, uh, such a wonderful way to live fulfilled life. Your legacy is 
exponential. I feel like the one human who did so much, I feel like you lived so many lives in parallel um, and changed and shaped um, so many aspects of medicine today. But with what would be, when we reflect back, uh, something that is still left in your bucket list and something that you would love to be remember and recognized for um, with all of these accomplishments um, as part of your timeless legacy. That's really tough because as I say, I've, I have um, gone in a number of directions to open as many doors where, where doors look like they could be open. So um, if I, if I wanted to re be remembered for anything I wanted you know, certainly to be remembered as a leader in the area that, especially of perioperative care, which is my field of expertise, because it's an area that somehow got forgotten, you know, during, uh, as transplant grew. And yet it's the area that, that truly is where the organ meets the individual and it's in the hands of the perioperative physicians such as myself. And it's been an area that I have worked so hard at from patient advocacy to the science uh, to improving the practices in order to get the best survivals possible. And so I would just want people to remember me for that, for pushing my whole area of science forward. And the one thing that I wanted to really mention is that even though right now we're caught in a conundrum of uh, we don't have the best method, but we're going to, but it's what we have right now to save lives. The one thing that really saves lives is when you do your job well. Mm. One of the problems throughout the world is that people are working very hard to save lives, but we don't even have all the information, or even if we do have the information on how to deal with the situation, the care is not given as well as it should, which is why I have traveled all over the world to work with people in different countries in terms of creating uh, practices that really benefit and educating people on the whole area of perioperative physiology and how patients respond to transplant. Um, that's one thing I would like to leave as a message behind that if you have a transplant program, it really is, you are really indebted to your patients to make sure that you deliver the absolute best care you can. And if you're not sure if you're delivering the best care, which is every a question everybody should ask themselves, bring in some, somebody to observe your practices and make suggestions. Wow, that is huge huge opportunity for improvement, huge opportunity to continue to learn and do better. And such, again, a tremendous advice and, again, tremendous legacy. 
And also, uh, before we wrap up, I would love to, if you don't mind sharing uh, the story that you were so impacted by and you had a chance to share with me, but I want our audience to hear it, that really was tremendously impactful on you uh, from young liver donor, I mean, recipient, um, that also what, what, it, what, what can happen when community and everybody come together and then how much that impacts you seeing patients that were either waiting or patients that were receiving and that you provided that tremendous care and, and, and support and you saw outcome and output that not only lift your spirit, but as you said, uh, persevere day to day, these challenging emotional moments where you poured your heart and soul in the practice and also care to go beyond and above. Yes. Well, I just, you know, I'll just mention that I think you and I had spoken about the fact that what kept me in this area and I would, and I told you that I would come in weird hours for a liver transplant, dragging myself in thinking, whoa, what, why am I doing this? And I would look and I would see the transplant recipient sitting in the bed that I was going to take care of. And I would think I would be overwhelmed with the bravery and the thoughtfulness of the individuals who were about to receive a transplant and the courage. And it was just the awe of watching my actual patients that brought me back. And not only brought me back, but I became so fascinated with them of how can people be so, I, I, I don't know, just so, you know, endowed with, with characteristics of, of the desire for survival and, and the clarity of mind that I often went just to see my patients, just to talk to them, of which I'm sure that really helped them because we, we really need to support our patients. But so, yes, it became a two-way uh, road of, of uh, me being absolutely amazed by them and them be depending on me as a mentor to help them. Thank you for listening to Legacy Leader Show. If you enjoyed the content and had a positive experience, then please leave us a positive rating. In addition, leave us positive review whenever you are listening on whatever platform there might be. Make sure your friends and family also know about the benefit and value that we provide and what we have to offer. Cheers.